0: Um. So, I'm a, yeah. So I'm I'm just a guy, right? A lot of times we think like, hey, missionaries are super holy. We're not. Okay, we're just we're just dudes and in, in dudettes that are just trying to follow Jesus, right? So uh, I didn't uh, I didn't grow up in church. Uh, I come from a a nominally atheistic family. Uh, I think the only Bible we had was one that the um, the Jehovah's Witnesses left for us. You know, because my mom was a stay-at-home mom and. You know, she didn't have a lot of time to interact with people like other adults. It was just, like, usually us kids. And I don't know if you've ever had to try and have a conversation with a five-year-old. Usually it's not the best. And so, like, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses would come in. She'd talk with them, and we'd get Bibles. So that was the only Bible we ever had. Never read it. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we grew up um, we grew up pretty poor, you know. And I'm not talking, like, you know, there's, there's like, middle-class poor where you're, like, I couldn't get the N64 or playstation or whatever when it came out you know that's i was poor right no we were like really poor like uh the way we ate was church donations were left on our doorstep and it was like hey what's for dinner i don't know open the door look spaghetti again it's only been 17 times in a row um so i i have a hard time eating spaghetti to this day um yeah do what i'll no, i olive garden you're paying somebody a lot of money to microwave your food you know that right it's a Um, Anyway, uh, yeah, so the reason why we were poor is because my parents weren't ready to have a child. My parents weren't ready to get married. The reason why they did that is because of me, right? They got drunk at a bar, thought it was cool to hook up, and then I'm like, surprise, I'm here, look at me, you know? And uh, that's not the best way to start a family. I don't know if you know that or not. Um, So, yeah, I kind of surprised them. Um, even worse is that I was born on Christmas Day, okay? Anybody have a birthday around the holidays? Anybody? Okay, y'all feel my pain. Like, I'm like, I'm not talking like Christmas, I'm talking December 25th is my birthday, right? And some people are like, oh, that's so great, but intelligent people know it's awful, right? So I just started off on the wrong foot, right? born out of wedlock, birthday's on Christmas, you know, like I get half the presents that the average person gets throughout the year, you know? like it's the worst and um i tell you I'll, okay this is the worst this this was the low point of my childhood right so i wanted so badly to have one of those like rca remote control cars you get from radio shack you know and we're poor so i know like the the remote control car i would get would be like a shoebox with a rubber band in it and my dad's like kick it you know um, but uh no, so, so like, I, I'm, like, nine years old. I just want this thing so bad, you know, I can taste it. I'm watching the, 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 like, commercials, and they're flipping and driving up walls, and I'm like, yeah, that's what I want, you know. So I'm bugging my parents, right? And so Christmas morning rolls around that year, and, and I see a big box under the tree, and I'm, like, stoked, you know. I know what that is. You know, you know. Sometimes you're like, I already know what that is. You know. Sometimes your parents are just really bad at wrapping presents, and you're like, gee, that present looks just like a bicycle. You know. But uh, I, I just knew the big box was was you know the car. And uh, so lo and behold, you know, Christmas morning, I wake up at like 4:30 a.m. I'm like, good morning, open presents. You know. And I wake up everybody, and and then I open it, and it's the car. You know, it's the remote control car I wanted. And I'm like, yes. You know. And then. And then I'm thinking, if this is my Christmas present, what are they going to do for my birthday? It's going to be amazing. How do you top this, right? I got the batteries for the car for my birthday. You know? I'll still, to this day, get, get Christmas cards with happy birthday handwritten into them, and there's like five bucks in it. That's two fifty per holiday. I can't afford stationery and stamps to mail you a thank you card. You know, like, get that trash out of here. Grandma, you're costing me money. Anyway, she doesn't even send cookies. I can't believe that. But yeah, so my, my parents actually didn't like each other. Um, they, they were amazing parents. I mean, my mom is incredibly generous. My dad is, is the most hardworking man I know. Uh, but they were terrible spouses. Like my earliest childhood memories are them throwing kitchen knives at each other and screaming profanities. It was not a happy home, Right. And I had uh, an older sister from my mom's previous marriage, and, and then uh, my younger brother came along as well. And in the back of my mind, I always knew that the reason my parents were married was because of me. The reason why they're screaming and yelling, the reason why my brother's ha- hiding under the bed crying, the reason why my sister's sneaking out the window trying to get away from home, is because I was born. Right? And so in my head you know, in a house devoid of God, I, I came to realize that I had negative value. If you were my friend, if you were in relationship with me in any way, I would hurt you. I would bring pain into your life because all my experience up to that point had proved that to be true, right? And so, um, thankfully, thankfully, the Lord intervened, right? Um... When I was in, in high school, uh, well, it started in junior high. I, I watched this movie, Rudy. It's really old. Y'all probably haven't heard of it, right? Okay, you have. To. Some of you will get into heaven. Praise God. Um, y'all didn't know there was an interest, <laughs> you know, entrance exam, you know, but uh, St. Peter would be like, uh, have you seen Rudy? No. Okay. And you go down. Anyway. Um, so uh, anyway, that's not true at all. That's blasphemous, and I'm sorry. Um, but, okay, so you look at me, right, and, and you think, I know what you think. You're thinking athlete, right? That's exactly what you're thinking. Like, this dude can play some football, right? I can if it's on, like, a video game. Anyway, uh, but I thought that I could be Rudy, right? And, and so I was on the football team, and I was, like, first string bench warmer. I was, like, really good at sitting down. And nobody could be better than me, right? But, uh, so... I was on the football team all through high school, uh, junior high and then into high school. And in, uh, in, when we would shower after practice, I, I liked to sing, right? And and uh, so I would sing in the showers, okay? And I'd sing this song like, why do you build me up, buttercup baby, just to let me down, you know? And then, and then the guys would join in and they'd echo, so they'd be like... Fill up, buttercup, baby. Just let me you know. Let me down and mess me around. And worst, worst, of all, you know, and like well, that's what we did. It was just like my function on the team was entertainment. You know, just like I'm the jukebox. You know, kick him, he'll sing it again. You know. Um, and uh, so one day there's this there's this church group uh, kind of parachurch organization called Young Life okay and our Young Life leader at our high school his name is Brian Summerall he found out that I would sing in front of people right and so he tells this the senior starting middle linebacker on the football team right he says um he says like Willie the guy's name was Willie Pinkston you know he's like Willie I need you to get that kid Scroggins to Young Life and so Willie decides that he's going to get me to Young Life right and I'll never forget this, right? I, this was before cell phones. That's how old I am. And we were poor, so I couldn't afford, like, my own car or anything, you know? And so I, I remember, you know, there was a hallway phone. Do y'all still have these? These do exist. You know, there's a hallway. And you have to dial 9 to get out, like, some kind of Neanderthal, you know? Like, like I have to remember the number? What is this? Uh, you know, like, so I dial 9, bang the rocks together, and it starts ringing. And uh, I'm sitting in the hallway, and... and and I was like, you know, 100 pounds lighter than I was, than I am now, you know. And so I'm standing in the hallway, and Willie Pinkston turns the corner. And Willie, Willie was carved from granite. You know, he was one of those dudes, he didn't even have a neck. Like, God just put his head right on his shoulders, you know. And he didn't like walk. He charged. He barreled at people. you I know, was just like, Ugh. And his arms are like the size of an elephant's butt. You know, he's just giant. And I remember he rounds the corner. And he sees me on the phone and he just goes, You. And I'm like, Oh God, oh God, please, just, I wanna, can I turn the color of the wall? Turn the color of the wall, right? And, and I'm like, the phone's ringing, I'm like, Please pick up, please pick up, please pick up, please pick up, you know? And then Willie just barrels down the hallway at me and goes, Are you Scroggins? And okay, so what do you do? You have to answer him, right? So I'm like, Yes, you know? Because I don't wanna die. And um, he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm, I'm calling my mom to come pick me up and because I'm cool in high school, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm like, uh, my mom answers about that. She's like, hello. And my mom doesn't sound like that in real life, but in my head she does. So, uh, she's like, hello. And, and then Willie goes, tell your mom you're going to Young Life with Willie Pinkston. You'll be home at nine. So if you're me in this moment, what do you do? Do you tell mom, I'm going to a place you don't know with a person you don't know, for an indeterminate amount of time, I may come home with one less kidney, you know? Do you do that? Or do you tell Willie, no thank you, and then he hits you so hard you just evaporate, like you cease to exist, right? So I do the logical thing and I terrify my mother, like mom, I'm going to Young Life with Willie Pinkston, I'll be home at nine, and then I can hear as I'm hanging up, like who's Willie Pinkston, you know? So I go to Young Life, and and I, I try and hide in the back. Any, you know, wallflowers in here? You know, like, you back row people, I see you, what's up? Yeah, anyway. Uh, so I'm, like, trying to blend in. And there's, like, 300 kids, you know? Like, a third of my high school's at this thing. And it's all the cool kids. Look at me. Not a cool kid, right? Skinny white dude, glasses, like, the mathletes beat up on me, you know, like, hey, come on, actic, man, you know, and I get shoved into a locker or something, you know, like, so I'm like, oh, God, this is the most uncomfortable I've been in my life, you know, and, and, um, And then it gets worse. Brian Summerall, the jerk, gets on stage, and he goes, is there a sophomore here by the name of Christopher Scroggins? I'm like, okay, now I get it. Like, the public humiliation, it begins now. Okay, great. So he calls me to the front, and I walk to the front. I get to the stage, you know, stand up, and I'm looking for the buckets of blood because I've seen Carrie. You know, I know how this works. And then he has me sing this song. He has me sing Build Me a Buttercup, just like I do in the shower. So I sing right, and then on the front row was the varsity cheerleaders right there, and they were like, sing it again, and I was saying it again, because I was like, a girl acknowledged my existence, greatest day ever, you know, so I'm so excited, anyway, so it turns out Brian became my friend, right, and he kept inviting me back to Young Life, and then he invited me to Bible study, and then he paid $500 out of his own pocket for me to go to this camp in Colorado, the furthest I'd ever been from home, never seen a mountain before, And I was sitting on the side of Mount Princeton overlooking the Arkansas River Valley on July 16th, 1999. I gave my life to Jesus. It was the first time I'd ever heard the gospel in my life. In that moment, all the things that I struggled with, every concept, every wrong concept I had, the Lord began to undo. Because whereas before, I thought, "Uh, "Who like what kind of person am I supposed to be? I only hurt people. Like, what kind, of, what kind of value do I have? Should I just kill myself? You know? Why am I even here? All of those questions Jesus answered. Right? Jesus answers these for us questions of character, of value, and purpose. Right? So, the first scripture I want to look at really quick as we unpack these three concepts is Romans uh, 8.29. I'm sorry. It says, For whom he, for, for whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Okay? So some people interpret this in a very different way, right? Not in a way that Paul intended. Um, Some people interpret this to mean, like, when you're born, you get, like, a red H or a blue H, like, and then you're done. Like, that's it. You know, you just either get angel wings or devil horns, and there's nothing you can do from that point at birth, right? But that's not what Paul's talking about here, right? Um, We can see that the subject of this sentence is is being conformed to the image of Christ that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, right? So the two big fancy words here, y'all, uh, I know a little Greek. It's okay. I've watched my big fat Greek wedding. So I'm an expert. Okay. So the first, first word is foreknow. In Greek, that's "prognosko." Okay. Pro meaning beforehand. And ginosko, uh is to know. But it's like an intimate knowing. In fact, when, uh, when Mary is, is uh, saying, I've never known a man, the word she uses is gnosko, right? So it's like an intimate knowledge of. So um, this word is also used when, um, when Paul is before King Agrippa in the book of uh, Agrippa, Herod Agrippa in the book of Acts, right? And King Herod says, I pro gnosko you, Paul. I, I foreknew you. So it's, I've heard about you. I know your reputation, right? I know who you are. The second big important word is um, predestined, right? Kind of a fancy word, right? It's pro-orizo, okay? Pro meaning beforehand. You all remember that from the last word, right? Y'all are taking notes, good people. Um, And then orizo is uh, the Greek word for boundary, okay? It's where we get the English word horizon from, okay? And so like... In uh, in Greek times, a farmer that that was staking out a claim would pro-orizo his land. He would walk around the boundaries of his land, right? So think of it kind of like a cookie cutter. You You throw that cookie cutter on the dough, and you've marked out the boundaries of that cookie. Does that make sense? So what this verse is saying is that before you were born, God knew that he wanted you to be like Jesus, The greatest extent of your character, the greatest that anyone can be, is Christ-like. Right? And that's what God intended from beginning of all of time, is for every one of you to look like Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? That's pretty cool. So when I sat and I asked, you know, who am I supposed to be? I don't want to be like my parents. I don't want to be like my best friend that killed himself. Who am I supposed to be in this world? Jesus is the answer. God has already thought about it. Does that make sense? I'm going to get to drink water because I'm nervous. <clears throat> Anybody want to, like, hum a tune or something while I do this? It's awkward silence. <laughs> well played. Now I spilled water on myself and it's even more awkward. (laughs) Hallelujah. Okay, next verse. Genesis 1, 26 through 27. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Something to point out here, you may not have noticed, is that likeness is not repeated. Right? Uh, Image is repeated, but not likeness. Image, in Hebrew, is the physical appearance. Likeness implies character. Have you ever said that? Like, those two are just alike? Or, you're just like your friend. You're just like your father. You're just like your mother. You're not necessarily talking about physical appearance, but who they are, their character. And God creates man in his image, but he has to develop character. Likeness has to be developed. That's why Adam had tasks in the Garden of Eden. Because character has to be developed. Isn't that pretty cool? Right? So, <clears throat> the, the interesting thing here is that God's this infinite character, and we're, we are clearly finite beings. Right? But when an infinite character expresses himself finitely, it's different every time. That's how we are all in the image and likeness of God, but all so different. It's like uh, if you could sum up the alphabet in one letter, what letter would you use? I mean, you, any of them are just as good, right? Maybe Y might be a little more special. because both kind of vowel, consonant, kind of thing. Anyway, um, nerd. Sorry. So, <clears throat> so God always intended us to be these snapshots of His character, these these little glimpses. Okay. So when my daughter, when uh, my wife was pregnant with my daughter, right? She's our first firstborn child. Um, I remember sitting in my office and just thinking like, Lord, what are you doing? Like, I can barely put my pants on right. Clearly can't drink water properly. You're trusting me with a human being. What are you doing, right? And uh, the Lord spoke to me. He's like, I'm giving you a great gift. You have no idea what I'm trusting you with. Your daughter is going to show a part of my character that's never been seen before and will never be seen again. And I, I just start crying. Like, it's so Beautiful. And later that week, I was walking across campus. I went to the same Houston State in Huntsville, Texas. Um, yeah, prison, prison capital of the world. Hallelujah. Um, and I'm walking through the quad, and all the frats usually set up like right in front of the library. And I got to get to the library to do some studying because I'm a good student, you know. It, I really had to work hard. I crammed those four years into ten and finally got my bachelor's degree. It was, a, it was a struggle, but I got it done. So I'm going to the library for like the first time in a decade, and um, I'm walking past the frat guys, and I just get mad. Like fraternities just make me mad. And I'm just like in my head, I'm like, Lord, strike them down. Just knock them around. This is, you know, I hope their frat house burns down. And by the time I get to the library, I put my hand on the door, and the Lord says, if it's true for your daughter, why isn't it true for them? And that's the, that's the beauty of this. Is it the person to your left, the person to your right? They are so sacred because they are showing a piece of God's character that you will never, ever get to see again. That's why everybody needs to get saved. Because when we're in heaven, we're going to weep over the people that had a sacred duty to show their part of Jesus that we won't be able to see. That are we gone? It's lost right? Uh, G.D. Watson, my, my favorite author, I can say that, uh, he says this, God is so infinite that all the countless millions that love and serve him, if one little soul living in obscurity in some hitaway place fails to fill its mission, God will miss that note in the vast orchestra of the universe, which is perpetually sounding forth his praise. It is not any mere action that God would miss, so much as the love and confidence of some trusting soul. It is not any mere action that God would miss, so much as the love and confidence of some trusting soul. So before Jesus, I asked, am I worth anything? Shouldn't I just kill myself? But here's the answer that God gives us. Here's the answer that Jesus gives us. You are irreplaceable, and so is the person next to you. So when Jesus tells the church to love one another, He's not just saying that because it's a good idea. I mean, it is a good idea. But to not allow others to become your brothers or sisters in Christ is robbing yourself of seeing Jesus shine through them. Not reaching out to that student, that freshman that's going to walk on this campus, not reaching out to them, you're robbing yourself. You're robbing the world of seeing that person walk with God. That's your only chance. That's it. Isn't that incredible? So, Jeremiah 29, 11. It's every church kid's favorite verse, right? Because it means, I'm going to get married one day, you know. Um, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. I actually disagree with this translation. Hebrews didn't quite, the, the Hebrews didn't quite have a, have a proper concept of plan like we do. We think, here's my plan, I'm going to execute it. Exactly how I wrote it. I think a better expression of this is dreams. See, because plans can be foiled. Plans can be ruined. Your plan for your life can be destroyed. It's happened to us. But your dream, the only way a dream fails is when you quit. So God has a dream for you. And he has a dream that only you can do. Because not only do you have that sacred mandate to show Jesus, but you also have a sacred mandate to live like Jesus. Because there's something beautiful about the way that you would walk through a situation that the world needs to see it. The campus needs to see it. Right? So, Jesus is weeping for the tomb of Lazarus. Because he sees his friend... That image of God, that imagio Dei, cut off, dead, laying in a tomb. So everything that Lazarus was supposed to present to the world is gone, right? And John tells us that Jesus is twice overcome with emotion, right? Because he sees corrupted character. He sees the ruin of sin. He sees the wasted value. He sees the distorted purpose, all of the work of sin and selfishness, right? Resulting in the death of Lazarus, Right? And then Jesus does something really weird that I always found interesting, is that he asks for help. He's the God of the universe. What is he asking help for, right? He, his first command is roll the stone away, right? And notice how he didn't, like, okay, anybody ever take CPR class? I, I had to do it, right? The well, first thing they tell you is, like, never say someone call 911, right? Because everybody would be like, oh, I'm glad somebody's calling 911 as the dude turns blue, you know? Like, somebody else is doing it. That's really good. No, you have to say like, "You call 911, right? That's how you have to do it because because you know where people were kind of slower on the uptake and were just like, oh, I call nine one one. He didn't me. me call nine one one. You know, um, that's how it works. Um, but Jesus doesn't do that. He wouldn't be good in an emergency situation, I guess, um, according to the CPR Red Cross people, because he he doesn't like voluntold people. Anybody ever get voluntold stuff? I hate that, you know. Um, anyway, he doesn't volunteer people, right? He just throws it out there. He doesn't command someone. He just says, roll the stone away. Roll the stone away. Why, one, why is he even asking for the help? He could say, like, you know, stone, become a giant rubber duck, right? And then all the Roman people would be like, hey, it's the Iron Age. I don't know what a rubber duck is, but, you know, here it is. Okay. Um, no, no, he doesn't do that. So he, some volunteers step up to the plate, and they risk looking really stupid, right? And they, they jam their sticks into these giant, they have to leverage it, right? And like Martha said, it smells in there. So if you're tasked with rolling a stone away from a tomb, it's really hard, it's really dirty, and then you know you succeed when you smell death. When it's the most foul stench you'll ever smell in your life, you've done your job. Right? Cool. And then Jesus, you know, he calls out, you know, remove the grave clothes. Why? He could have just snapped his fingers and Lazarus would be wearing a sequin tux and look really cool, you know? I don't know. Are sequin tuxes cool? I don't know. Um, But no, again, volunteers step up to go through the tedious task of removing strips of linen from him. Right? I hate detail work. Anyone, I, I, if you want to punish me, give me a repetitive detailed task, like that's when I know, like I, one time I had a job, and my job was to pack envelopes, just to stuff envelopes all day, eight hours a day, and the only other human I saw was the UPS guy, like once a day. I was like drawing faces on cardboard boxes by the end of it, you know, I was just like <laughs> this is my buddy Bill, you know, and like like, oh Scroggins, I think maybe you should find another line of work. Um, And I did, and it was great. Hallelujah. Right? But in both cases, Jesus gave dignity and honor to those that answered his request. Those that trusted Jesus was going to do something awesome. And what do I mean by that? Well, for the rest of their lives, they could say, I helped Jesus perform a miracle. Standing at the city gates, hanging out. Hey, remember that Lazarus thing? Was that real? Yeah, yeah, it was real. I, I moved the stone. I saw his dead body in there. It was definitely real, you know. Jim over here removed the grave clothes. He gives them dignity and honor for stepping up and and volunteering and helping. Right? Uh, I'm going to go back to G.D. Watson. Actually, not yet. Um, so essentially what this means is that Jesus has a task and a purpose for you that only you can do. Right? And he's calling, he's not commanding. He wants you to answer. Because it's, you know, behold, I stand at the door and knock, not behold, I blow a Jesus shaped hole in your wall. Right? You have to open the door, you have to answer, you have to volunteer. So G. D. Watson says this: God has woven around each of our lives a network of special providence that is marvelous to contemplate and that is never duplicated with any angel or man. Each of our lives, if written out from god 's standpoint and under divine inspiration, would form a little Bible and have in it something like the pathetic charm of the lives of the old patriarchs. so um, my daughter was the flower girl and some of my best friends' weddings, right? Um, my friends Pam and Jonathan—they uh, got married, and uh, well, before they got married, they wanted my daughter to be the flower girl, right? It was really super honor. I'm, I was like really excited. Uh, I got to officiate, um, well, half. They didn't trust me because I'm not a good speaker. Um, but uh, me and my friend officiated, so I only said like "Hi, everybody," and then gave the mic away, and it was good. I did good. Um, but so Pam and Jonathan came over, right, and they came over with a bouquet of flowers and a dress that they had picked out for her. Right? And they came over and they got down, both of them got down on their knees and said, like, Finnegan, will you be our flower girl? You know, and my daughter dreams of nothing but being a princess, so of course she's in, you know. Um, and so, like, you know, rehearsal thing, night comes up and and uh, Finney has this, like, little decorated basket and, uh, Finney's my daughter, sorry. Um, and, and we practiced, okay, so what you're going to do, is it's going to be flower petals in here, and you step and you drop and you step and you drop and go all the way to the front. And when you get to the front, you go sit down by mommy, right? And it, it's just, it's great. You know, she gets it. Cool. So D-Day, right? It's like marriage day. And it's an outdoor wedding in Huntsville, Texas in July, okay? So it gets as hot temperature-wise as here but it's like a billion percent humidity. Like, we don't walk, we swim everywhere. It's just water. It's just, it's horrible. Yeah, have you ever, like, have you ever, like, smashed your face into a bowl of hot soup? That's what we live in, okay? It's horrible. And I'm wearing a suit, right? And there's other people wearing suits, and they're sitting down, and there's no shade. Like, we've killed all the trees in the area, right? And so we're we're right there, right? And, and all the groomsmen and the, the groom come up, and we're all standing, and then, and then it's Finney's turn, right? It's it's her turn. But in the basket, instead of just only having flower petals, they put that little, like, you know, that plastic Easter grass stuff. You know, you know what I'm talking about? That stringy stuff that you're like, oh, thanks for putting this in there. Deposit into trash, you know? They put that in there. And my daughter, bless her heart, is a rule follower. I am not. She gets that from her mother. Um, but... Uh, So when she gets up there, she steps up. She's at the back, you know, and uh, she picks up a little flower petal, but notices that she gets some of that grass stuff, you know, the plastic grass. She's not supposed to drop that, just the flower petals, right? So she drops it back down, digs through. Okay, only flower petals drop, step. Dig through, dig through, drop, step. And she's moving at a pace that even a glacier would be like, can you move? You know? And remember, we're all melting. Grandma's about to have a stroke over here, you know? I'm like, oh my gosh, you know? And it's an outdoor wedding, so we can see the bride on a ridge over there. She's right there. My buddy Jonathan can see his soon-to-be wife, and he's about to explode. I mean, like, we're talking just boom, he's gone, right? And so I'm like, okay, I gotta, gotta, like, hurry up the process. So I'm like, Finny... This way, Finnegan. This way, and then people start laughing because it's really cute. And she's thinking, you know, she's a little like, you know, what, four year old at this point, and and so she's in front of a bunch of people that are laughing at her. So your natural reaction is to go, I'm out of here. People are laughing at me, right? And so I'm like, Finny, come on, Finny, <whistles> Finny, come here. And then I think, she's not a dog, she's a child. So. I break protocol. I march down the aisle, right? And I grab her hand. I'm like, okay, it doesn't matter. It's okay. Just drop, step, drop, step. And we get all the way to the front. About halfway through there, I'm like, I'm walking down the aisle at a wedding, and my daughter's in a white dress. I need to buy a gun. And then we get to the front, right? It's all good. It's all good. They got married. They're still married to this day. They're very happy. It's good, right? But afterwards, the Lord spoke to me. Right? So, Pam and Jonathan had picked out the dress for Finny to wear. They had told her exactly what to do. They prepared her in every way to accomplish the task that she is supposed to accomplish. Now, the flower girl's role in wedding, traditionally, has been to um, provide a path of fragrance and beauty. To expand the boundaries of beauty so that the bride can meet the groom. That's what we do. See, even when my daughter got scared, her father still came down and led her by the hand to help her accomplish what she was supposed to do. And so the Lord has a job for you. And there's something special about your personality, your character, who you are, that the Lord wants to see shine through in that moment. And even if you get scared, He will step off his throne. He will take your hand and walk you. You can do it. There's going to be a couple thousand freshmen that come to this campus. There's going to be one freshman that the Lord wants you. He's dreaming about it, been dreaming about it for millennia. He wants you to expand the boundaries of fragrance so that that bride can meet their groom. So some of you, uh, band, you can come on up. Some of you are going to be people that remove the gravestone, okay? I'm going to be honest. And you're going to be having hard, dirty work. And then when, when you roll that stone away and they can hear the voice of God, do you know what you're going to be met with? Stink. Everything that's dead and rotting will be made known. Right? Right? We call that evangelism. And then some others of you are going to have this tedious job of, you're going to have this person that heard the voice of God, and they're going to be walking, shuffling out of their tomb, but they're bound by the clothes of a dead man. And it's going to be your job of tediously, patiently, lovingly removing those clothes so that they can be free. But you know what the beauty there is? You get to see the new man that's underneath. You get to see that resurrected person. And if you get scared, if you get scared, God will come off the throne and he'll help you.